I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Hello, this is the first time that I've had two guests, so we'll have to see how this goes. I'd like to welcome Carol and Brad White. I've known both of them for many, many years, but we really, uh, Carol and I actually solidified our friendship climbing Masada, and we actually did get to the top. So we had a lot of time to talk and talk about life, values, careers, and everything like that. Carol is an MBA from University of Chicago. She's also a Wolverine. For those of you that don't know what a Wolverine is, University of Michigan. She's founder of CB White. She turns information to high-impact marketing to organizations that serve the public interest. Examples are educational institutions, environmental companies, the arts, health, and much more. Brad is a lawyer and also Wolverine. They met in college. Carol's last name was Brown, and she met Brad White. So the colors were all in their favor. He's a senior program director at Richard Driehaus Foundation. He oversees the Built Environment Program, and you will learn more about that from Brad. He has 35 years experience in community development, affordable housing, and philanthropy. I was very impressed then and still impressed now that he was appointed by President Barack Obama as general public member to the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. So welcome, Brad and Carol White, to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. Both of you have used your values for your career paths. So today we're going to learn about those career paths, how you were able to take the dream for many people while you were working, you were able to leave for 53 days to go to Southeast Asia. Mind you, I think they both left with one backpack, but they'll tell you more about that later. Their summer tradition and why it's so important to them and their family and how they maximize their return on life. So Brad, I'm going to do uh, women first. So Carol, I'd love to start with you. If you can tell us a little bit about your career path, how you used your values, and what you're doing now. Thanks, Sherry, and thanks for having us on. This is really a treat to get to talk to you and talk. As I've read about your Maximize Your Return on Life, it's always resonated with me. I felt in a way that you've expressed the way we have tried to live our lives. So it's fun to get to tell about our version of that. I am someone who was at the University of Chicago in business school in the 80s, learning all these things that, that make organizations work. And with a strong family history in philanthropy and in nonprofit organizations, and I grew up in that, with inspired by my grandmother and my mother, I kept thinking that everything I was learning made sense for organizations that might be maximizing something other than revenue. And 
I brought that up with my professors, one in particular, and he said, that's a great idea. You're right. At that time, business schools, social enterprise wasn't on the radar. Business schools didn't teach anything except traditional corporate for-profit type of principles. But he said to me, you'll do it eventually, but you need to go work in corporate first. That's what I did. I went and worked in the corporate sector doing a market research for Fortune 100 organizations, mostly in service industries. And I guess we'll call it midlife crisis number one. I finally decided I had to take the plunge with a very supportive two-career household. Um, I was able to step away from my job and explore how I might apply what I knew how to do to organizations serving the public interest. That's my broader way of talking about nonprofit organizations. Does any organization serving the public interest would want to think about how do I bring information in to make better decisions? And that's how I think about market research. What problem are you trying to solve? How can we bring in information from the outside to help you, you the organization, make a better decision? That makes as much sense for an organization like a cancer wellness center as it does for an organization like Chevron. So that's where I went. It's Do I think of it as maximizing my return on life? Absolutely. So what year did you start that, Carol? Started in um, 1999. Wow. And do you have other employees or how does that work? That was kind of another question of maximizing the return on life part of it. I don't have employees. I have people work for me on a project basis, doing filling a variety of roles um, in my work so that I can expand what CB White offers. And uh, But it made a very conscious decision that I love both selling and doing the work and that this is the size that works for me. And I know that means I might not maximize my revenue, but I maximize the way I live my life. And going back when you made this decision, because it was such a big decision to leave corporate America and start your own, I have a lot of clients that talk to me, and I always say the key to financial happiness is living within your means and having an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be presumptuous. You want to talk a little bit about that, because it is a financial decision also. Absolutely. And it's it's a, you know, it's a joint decision. Brad and I definitely sat together, looked at, you know, where we were and what we could afford and what we needed me to earn to live the life we wanted to live. And again, I think it meant that for both of us, the goal wasn't get as rich as we could in dollars. It was live the life we want to live that was fulfilling and, you know, so we knew what I needed to earn. We knew how long we could deal with me not earning. And the job market was really strong. So there were a lot of things that kind of mitigated the risk. The job market was incredibly strong at that time. So we also knew if it didn't work, I'd just go get a job. I'd go back to corporate and that wouldn't be the worst thing. So I think there were multiple ways. But yeah, sure, we had the financial liquid cushion and we had the security of another income. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, what's interesting to me is a lot of people, when they start their own businesses, it's all consuming. But I've seen how you've been with your kids and you've been involved in their life. And it almost feels that by starting your business, it may have given you more time with the family, which people, they don't think that. They think if I start the business, that means I'm not going to be able. So what's your been experience having your own business? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think it's a matter of priorities. If I had put everything into saying, you know, revenue is everything, that probably would have meant an insufficient number of, of hours with our kids. I do think that starting one's own business, as you well know, Sherry, 
sometimes people say, oh, that's such great flexibility. Yeah, well, but if I'm not working, I'm not earning. So it's, it's much harder than people think. And I do think it requires more conscious effort to say, what are my hours going to be? Because I could work all the time. So I, I think it's a very conscious decision. I think that I've had different ways I've done it. I've shifted it over time. I've been frustrated at certain times, but I think mostly it's trying to say, how do I take this thing I've got that I love to do, fit it into the hours I want it to fit in, let it mushroom out sometimes when it has to and bring it back in at times. Um, I've just been fortunate to make that work, but it's always a conscious effort. It doesn't just happen. We could think about it 24-7. And- Absolutely. I always say there's going to be times that you're going to have to work and maybe not spend as much time as you want with your family. And there's some family needs you and work, you know, so that you're never fully balanced. That's I've seen that. Right. I think work-life balance, which I think applies to all people, married, single, parenting, not parenting, men, women. I think work-life balance applies to everyone. And I think it is a conscious project. It doesn't just happen. And you have to give yourself a little leeway now and then. And the last thing before we go to Brad is uh, you've been working from home since you started the business. Now everyone's working from home. Any secrets for our listeners? What keeps you focused and what breaks you take and how you do it? Yeah, so work from home was not new to me. I laughed when people needed to learn Zoom, but was delighted to help them. <laughs> yeah, Brad's pointing to himself. So <laughs> yes. I think you had one at your home. <laughs> he did. He said, What's Zoom? <laughs> yeah. And I think the work from home balance issue goes in both directions. So, on the one hand, people say to me, How do you get anything done? Quite honestly, that comes back to earning. Like, sure, I could not work, but you could be at an office and also not work. I have to earn, so I'm motivated to work. So I've never found that part to be a problem. I think actually sometimes work from home is a more conscious effort to say, how do I separate this? Right. And something that Brad and I did, I don't remember how many years in, uh, was create a dedicated space. So I have my office and I really try. And it was much more important, in fact, when the kids were still at home to say, this is my office and the store is either open or closed and to try to segregate it in some way. I do know someone, I've, I have not done it, I think it's very clever, someone who literally goes outside, takes a walk as if they're commuting and comes into work. Oh, that's funny. And leaves <laughs> and takes a walk to leave work. Although if I can interject, sometimes her office creeps out to the, uh, in the summer, out to the right. uh, screened in porch, and even in the winter to the dining room table. But uh Generally, her office is her Yeah, office. well, you know when she's working, when she's not. So now I'm going to turn it over to you, Brad, kind of the same question. Can you tell us how you are where you are today and kind of how you got there? Well, my path is really not as deliberate as Carol's was. As Carol explained, she, you know, kind of had this thought even when she was in business school of what she would eventually do, although she didn't know she would do it on her own or whatever. But but mine was a lot less uh, <laughs> thought through, I guess. You know, I was in uh, law school and probably my second year, I'm like, mm, is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? And I think it was my third year in law school. I had a land use seminar, uh, which was a really good experience. Um, it was about real estate. It was about zoning. Um, it was about all sorts of issues in the development of cities. 
and I um, did a did a paper on the Chicago Landmarks Preservation Ordinance. And as a result of that, I did some volunteer work for what was then called Landmarks Preservation Council of Illinois. Uh, and they uh, directed me to a individual, a guy named Dick Rodewig, who was practicing law and real estate consulting. And I ended up finally getting to talk to him the day after the bar exam was over. And at the end of the conversation, I think it was a Friday, the end of the conversation, he said, uh, you know what, uh, meet me for breakfast on Monday. I'm having breakfast with one of the lead land use law attorneys in the city, and we're working on some zoning, some zoning work. So I've got work for you to do, and let's just see how it goes. And that was my first job, or first professional job, I guess. You know, from there, I did, I learned how to do market analysis and real estate appraisals and lots of historic preservation work. And historic preservation was kind of the through line through all the work that I do. And then from there, I decided I wanted to get into real estate development, but also kind of with my with a mission-based real estate development, I would call it, because I, I went into affordable housing development. And I learned so much during that period, so much about financing. And, you know, I was not an MBA, but learned about financing and, and uh, putting deals together and how many layers of financing goes into those deals. After 12, 13 years of doing that, I responded to an uh, internet posting organization called the Alphawood Foundation. I, I, had, I had said to myself, wow, this looks really great, but I have no experience doing philanthropy. And well, it turns out the person who was doing the hiring, the, the uh, benefactor in the philanthropy does non-traditional hires. So the executive director is, ends up being a lawyer. I end up being a lawyer. And uh, I had two other people in the organization at the time also didn't have any direct or didn't have much direct philanthropy experience. But through that, um, I've been doing that since uh, 2011. And in November, I took a, a different job at the Driehaus Foundation to be the senior director of the built environment. It's a great opportunity for me because the built environment involves architecture, land use planning, urban design, placekeeping, and those are all the things I'm working on. It's really the all the things that I've worked on over my entire career in one way or another. So it's it's it was an exciting opportunity. And you know, I've been here since November, took a little time off in between, did some travel. As you'll find out, travel is very important to one of your values, right? Yes, travel's one of them. That's how I got here. I, the kids kind of say I've had multiple careers, and I guess if you break it down, I've had about three. I don't think I'm going to have any more, but uh, that's where I'm at today. So did you ever work at a law firm, or you went straight into the job? Never worked at a traditional law firm. Dick had, uh, part of what he had was Dick Rodewig and Associates, so I was a member of Dick Rodewig Associates, as well as uh, a member of a real estate consulting firm called Schles & Company. But no, I, I never worked at a law firm. And in some, in some ways, that, that was an advantage to me. Mm -hmm. I ta have talked to friends over the course of these years. And some of them, I go, oh, I really wish I could do what you were doing. And I say in one way or another that some of them, at least, I said, well, you won't do it because you won't give up the income. These are colleagues that were working at larger law firms. 
they came out as an associate salary, which is pretty decent and much more than the salary I had when I came out. And it you know, continues to grow and it makes it, I think in many ways more and more difficult to, to step back from that um, and, and do something that may not be quite as well-paying. But there have been those that have done it. And I, I always, uh, I congratulate them when they do it because they're often much happier than doing the, doing the different things. And the number of lawyers that have gone into not-for-profit work are working for um, nonprofit organizations. There are many. We have to remind ourselves, fortunately, I didn't practice a long time, but those that have practiced a while have to remind themselves that they're not lawyering now. They're working in a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. A lot of the skills we learned in law school and acquired over time are really good for uh, running nonprofits, particularly policy-based ones. Yeah, it must have been a surprise for your friends in law school when you didn't go to that traditional route at the big law firm. So, yeah, it was it was somewhat of a surprise. I mean, I came out of DePaul, and a, a lot of kids went in a lot of different routes. We probably from DePaul didn't have as many who had the opportunity to go to the larger law firms, but most of them went and practiced law. Uh, although when I look back on it now. And look at in the alumni magazine what people are doing. They're they're more varied than than when we came out of law school. And you know some go to accounting firms and and do different things because they had an accounting background mm-hmm. or obtained an accounting background. So it's worked out well though for me. Yeah, I, I loved hearing both of your history because I've known you guys for a while and I kind of met you on the second half. I didn't know the before, but I kind of feel you're both ahead of your time because. A lot of my MBAs that are at big consulting firms or corporate America and a lot of the lawyers, they say, you know, I love working. I just don't want to work in this kind of work or work this hard. So in their 50s, they might gravitate to a nonprofit or they might start their own firm. You guys were kind of ahead of the curve. And I think you're going to be ahead of the curve when we go into the next discussion. And this I know we were there and talked about it for a long time, but I don't know who wants to take it. Let's start at the beginning. How did you come up with this dream of taking 53 days off going to Southeast Asia? So who wants to start with that? Our daughter, Hannah, yeah, right. should start, actually. Yeah, okay. Carol, Carol, <laughs> Carol, why don't you start? You know, it's hard to know exactly when, but I, I think that travel is an, another of our through lines. Absolutely. You know, we could talk about financial decision, Sherry, we would look at furniture that needed to be replaced. And then we would think about a trip we wanted to take and the trip always won. And you guys were on the same page, which is sometimes unique for totally. couples. Yes. And so when Hannah, our younger daughter was in on a long backpacking trip in Southeast Asia, we met up with her for two weeks and we loved it. We spent time in Vietnam and just really really loved it and saw how she was traveling and then at the other end which was incredibly inexpensively and then you know saw how we were traveling which was not high high end but more luxurious but kind of realized that there might be a middle ground we were approaching landmark birthdays that was 50 right yeah sure and (laughs) I think I said we need to do a longer trip we need to do a trip at the pace that Hannah is able to do it because a longer trip is an entirely different thing. The pace is different. The planning, or in fact, not planning, is entirely different. And I had always wanted to try an unplanned trip. And I, I just I felt like this is a region in which we could afford a long trip because it appeared 
that for an incredibly low daily spend, we could have a trip that would work. And I think I said, if we are both interested in this as being the thing we do to mark this birthday, which two people are there who can't pull this off? I run my own business. So I ought to be able to figure out a way. And it's mostly on the computer. I ought to be able to figure out a way to be away from it for a couple of months or be plugged in a little and keep it going. And Brad, you work for an organization that ought to support the idea of a sabbatical because there are enriching experiences that make us better at our jobs. I think I planted that seed and we, like we do with those things, you could let them germinate. Yeah, Brad, how did you confront your company though? Because it... Carol gave herself her own approval. How did you do it? Still, still tricky. Still, <laughs> but Carol's boss said it was okay. Right. Um, but you know, I, I, well, we waited a little while. We talked about it, um, and I do remember when Carol was approaching sixty, and then the timing, and I, I'm like, well, I'm not sixty yet. She goes, yeah, it's. Wait, can we back up one moment? They have the same birthday. Yeah. So we had a year. We had a year where she was sixty and I was fifty-nine. Like, oh yeah, it's getting close. So. So it's time to talk to the office. And, you know, my colleague, the executive director who ran the Alphawood Foundation at the time, was just really very supportive. Um, I went in and he goes, well, let's think about this. And then how much time do you want? And I kept kind of pushing time. And, you know, he was going to create a whole sabbatical policy. I think as it turned out, we didn't have a whole sabbatical policy. Brad just went. The Brad policy. Yeah, it was the Brad policy at the time. And, you know, I was in a position as associate director, I think that he felt it was uh, doable and also, you know, a good way to keep me around. Because we did have, I don't know if I ever, I can't remember if I ever signed anything, but there was an understanding that I would, it would not leave the day I got back. So I was supposed to be around a year. Um, and I was, I was around more than a year. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult from that perspective. Plus, our foundation had an interest in Southeast Asia, which which also kind of helped, and, and it helped get this approved. It also helped in um, some of our travel because we did a couple of things that we wouldn't have known about otherwise. Um, so it it was not traumatic in any in any way going to uh, going to the executive director, my my boss, and and talking about it. I think we talked about it over a couple of week period of time and how it would work and would I be available? And, you know, I was available. Um, I would check email and, you know, we could get text or WhatsApp. So it, it worked out well. And I, I would respond to questions. There, I, I had a little trick. I had what I call in my email, a trip email. And I would put things in there that could wait until we got back mm -hmm. or put things in there that could wait a couple of weeks. But you know, there were some things I just needed to answer pretty quickly, and I answered them. Um, you know, Carol Carol was working too, so it wasn't hard to find a little bit of time um, to check in with the office. And it certainly makes the reentry a lot easier when you've oh, yeah. <laughs> done some checking. So, my trick on this, Sherry, was I at this point had had someone who was supporting me on projects for about four years. So she, we we laugh about my having to give the approval, but to actually, she was the first person I reached out to to say, "Are you comfortable?" covering my practice for two months. And what I meant by that was being the one who keeps an eye on things and honestly just alerts me if there's something that needs, that puts something to the top of the queue so that when I'm trying to work about eight hours a week, she tees up what I need to do in those eight hours. And in fact, 
I had forgotten about it until you said it, Brad. I actually created a dedicated email address so that I could avoid looking right. at all the email. I created a dedicated oh, email that's address that was called, I think, I think it might have been called Carolyn Brad Southeast Asia at gmail.com. And I gave that address only to this person who was supporting my work and to my family members and maybe to Brad's family members. So that if we looked at that, it was because somebody really needed to get in touch with us, either for me for work or our family for any kind of emergency. And it really allowed us to only, for me at least, only check that email or to check for that, okay, priority hours or family matters. Boy, I've never, th I love that idea. I'm going to use that next time I go on vacation because we'll talk about this in a moment, but we all need to unwind every now and then. And that way, if your company, your staff, your family, you know, we have aging parents, you know, it would be nice to, that's a great idea. I, I hope you guys out there listen to that because maybe you can, uh, maybe not 53 days, but even seven days, you can use that trick. So Carol, you mentioned something. It was a unplanned trip. You know, a lot of us go away. We spend all this time. We have an agenda. So did you know where you're going or you, what did you do? What do you mean by unplanned? So we had a, a rough vision of the itinerary, kind of a shape. We knew roughly that we were going to go from Bangkok to Northern Thailand to Cambodia to Laos and into Vietnam. That was a basic shape. Um, we had gotten together with a couple uh, more in our age range than in Hannah's age range who had done something similar and talked through, you know, we need the something slightly better than a back, something slightly more comfortable than a backpacker's version of this because we weren't going to stay in the party hostels. And they really helped us immensely on, uh, you know, just sort of here's two key websites uh, that you use to search hotels and you can say, you know, here's our price range and it has to have air conditioning. Do you remember the websites? Travel Fish was a great one for information. And then the booking sites, we I'd have to look. We used Agoda. Bookings.com. Okay, they'll email it to us and I will put it on the website for our listeners just because I think those are good tips. So, and Brad can definitely speak because we had this definite. So before we left, we had our hotel room in Bangkok and our flight to our next city and maybe our hotel in our next city, maybe. And yeah, I'm not sure we did. I'm not sure whether or not we did or whether wow. we did. And then in each city and, and Brad definitely. So together we would talk about where we wanted to go. We kept collecting information. You're talking to other travelers. Things are coming onto your radar. That's the, the part of it being unplanned. It charges this part of your brain that's just full exploration when it's not all planned out and you haven't read everything ahead you just get to be in discovery I don't it charges for me a part of my brain this feeling of discovery and in a place that is so different you know in, in learning and understanding what our needs are in Bangkok our first hotel was an American a traditional American hotel I think it was a Sheraton and we decided you know let's do that for the first one we want to be able to make sure that we can communicate we want to get used to the time change. We want to get used to the culture. Um, we knew the room would be comfortable. And it was all of that. And, you know, when we left there, though, we were like, okay, we don't need this anymore. We, <laughs> we, we've, we've figured this out. You know, so I, if we had the flight and the next hotel to Shanghai, it was only because we didn't want to spend the first four days trying to figure that out. So we right, figured right. that out at home. 
But beyond that, we did kind of just, we look and we go, okay, where do we want to go next? And okay, it's time to check on hotels. And, you know, we made a mistake on our second second city. We went to Chiang, Chiang Rai, which is in the north of Thailand. And we're like, okay, we could, we could just uh, get on a bus to go to Chiang Mai. Everybody told us there was a bus. Well, it was New Year's and we... <laughs> I didn't think the the uh, communities celebrated New Year's like we do. Well, in fact, they do. There were no seats on any buses. So we ended up staying in Chiang Rai one more day and, you know, figured it out going to Chiang Mai, took, and ended up taking the bus the next day. And, you know, I think it cost us $50 because we had had a hotel room and didn't use it. As it ended up, they were kind of flexible with us at the next hotel anyways. And they upgraded I, us. So, you know, but as Carol will say, the, the mis mistakes in traveling in in a lot of places, but certainly in Southeast Asia, they're not multi-million dollar mistakes. They're $50 mistakes. Sometimes they're $5 mistakes. When you're trying to decide whether you want the spicy version or the not spicy version of the main course and you realize the main course costs a dollar, you order it both ways. Yeah, that's so funny. You don't negotiate it hard, as hard, like getting from one place to another in a tuk-tuk, which is a carriage, basically. You know, I had to start telling Carol, I said, like, we're negotiating over 50 cents. Let's stop already. <laughs> and, it, and it's like some of us go on vacation. We have this checklist. We got to go here. Boom, boom, boom. On Monday, we're going here Tuesday. It just sounds like you were able to take your time. If you loved where you were, you stayed an extra day. And if, if I have one piece of travel advice for anybody going anywhere is I think staying in a place more like five days than two days is, is when all the magic happens. Because in the first two days, you do the big checklist items. So this applies to Paris and London and yeah. Los Angeles, in those first two days, you do the big things. In the next three days, you explore neighborhoods. You go to the equivalent of Logan Square. You like you go to the cool, interesting places and see interesting art that you would never know about. That's the magic. Stay longer. Go fewer places, each one longer. But that's that's kind of the philosophy we've used throughout our travel, whether it's a 10-day trip or a three-week trip or an eight-week trip, we probably see fewer cities or go to fewer places and, and are more, I don't know if it's immersed, but it's more in-depth and having some time to, to just wander around. I mean, I look at back at my journals from our travels and I go, okay, today was wandering day, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. That's great. And I, I think people can really relate to that and hopefully maybe change some behaviors because it's not a race when you travel. It's it's to have fun, relax. I want to hit two more points and then we're going to move on to the next. If I remember, you guys really just traveled with a backpack? Yes, we did. Mine was 15 pounds. I think Carol's was right around there. And um, I, we will say that they do get heavier with time. What happens is they, they absorb moisture. Oh, it was always lighter after we washed our clothes and dried them than um, than just before that. Any any packing tips for the listeners if you're going to take a 15-pound back? Less, less, less. Put it all out, and then everything you think you need a week before or two weeks before, and then start taking it out, weeding it out. And if you're going to put it on your back, pack the whole backpack and walk around the block with it and see how you feel. And yeah. you'll be motivated to get stuff out. 
two pair of shoes, one on my feet, one in the backpack. That's it. And how did you guys feel when you came back? We were happy to see our kids and sad to be back. Yeah. But did you feel renewed at work and all those things or you're dreaming about the next vacation? It was really weird timing because we returned on February 15th of 2020. Oh, yeah. So I don't, Sherry, I don't know how to think about our return because it was yeah. so abnormal. We literally I returned. remembered that. Yeah. But you got the tripping. I will say, um, and one thing that we have talked about is thank goodness for this trip and spending 24-7 together and loving it, enjoying <laughs> it, having a great time, learning again that we can laugh and tell jokes and all sorts of things, because I'm not sure the it would have been as easy in 2020 to do that starting March 13th, which is when we all started doing it, um, had we not been on this trip and seen you know, really experienced a great time together. And how many years have you been married? A lot. 38. <laughs> 38. Even the fact that on the on a trip like that, one of the muscles you're flexing is flexibility and problem solving, which by the way, is exactly what we all started needing in early March as well. And our muscle was pretty strong right then for mm -hmm. flexibility and problem solving. Nobody wanted it to happen. Right. But and I will say, I think there's one other important word, though, for how we felt and feel about all of it, which is incredibly fortunate. We are so lucky. Yeah, we've made some of it happen, but we're also really unbelievably lucky in so many ways. I'm lucky to have sisters who were willing to come and spend extended periods of time here mm -hmm. while we were gone so that my 94-year-old mom had a daughter in, in the city. Fortunate to have daughters in the city who were absolutely ready and willing to also assist with my mom or be supportive of what we were doing. A lot of, a lot of good fortune. Uh, there's another value that you guys have that I've often been very jealous of. And every summer you guys do something pretty special. So uh, maybe Carol, I'll have you talk about it. Cause I think it was your family tradition that it started. Yeah. Generations back, my family started renting cottages in Charlevoix, Michigan. And when I say my family, that is a lot of like, that's parents, grandparents, cousins, first cousins, second cousins, third cousins. On both sides. Both sides, <laughs> dad's side, mom's side. In 2003, remember when there was a giant power outage in the entire East Coast and it spread over to Detroit, which is where my family was. We ended up with an impromptu gathering on a beach in Charlevoix of 54 people. I think I was related to 51 of them and I was related to many of them <laughs> twice on both my dad's side and my mom's side. So um, Brad and I kind of resurrected that tradition. Um, my family had, you know, had done that over the years, lots of beach time with cousins, which is something I love, cousins that you in fact know, Sherry, and that Stephen uh -huh. knows quite well. When I was 30, Brad and I went up there and I kind of renewed my love of Charlevoix and, and he was bitten by the bug as well. And uh, so then when our kids were small and my sister's kids were also small, we all started going again. And now it's turned into a pretty locked in tradition where family goes up for a week or two or more uh, in August and sits on the beach together. And, you know, we go to the beach, we eat smoked fish and corn and ice cream. She likes to say that um, and we went up and the family went up. This is was really important to Carol. She worked really hard to make it a tradition and really hard to continue the tradition. 
you know, with figuring out housing and figuring out dinners and figuring out food. And, you know, now there's like 15 or 16 relatives that go up there or, or potential to go up there. And that's, uh, there's some management that goes into that, that um, you need to harangue you or her sisters to make their plans and all that sort of stuff. So it's really been something that, that she's done because we do think it's important for the kids and all the extended cousins. Your family's all over the country. So it's, you know, once a year, you're all together. And they had a big celebration this year. Their daughter got married. So now the extended families are coming. And I think there's some nieces and nephews that have been married. So this group will probably get up to 53 again pretty soon <laughs> with everyone coming. So, well, thank you, Brad and Carol, for being on the podcast. I hope that you see how they really maximize the return on life, not only in their careers, but with their family, with their free time. And they're really been a model. They've been wonderful friends that I, I just love living and hearing about all that they're doing. And, and I hope you've learned a lot from them on the podcast. I'm going to say something else. In the gratitude that I mentioned earlier, I do think, and I'm not saying this just because you invited us on, Sherry, it is not insignificant at all to me that we have had you in our corner for over 20 years. How long, Sherry? I think it's been, yeah, 17, 20, yeah. When these big decisions get made, it is with you in our corner as well. Like, can we afford this? What does it mean? What's it mean if I make less money in 2020? Because I did. I think the um, reassurance we get from that is huge. And it's it's really an important part of our story as well, I think. And I think it's one I, I actually can take for granted. And then when I stop for a minute, we have those meetings with you, I'm reminded of how, or when I have to call Stephen with an, oh my God, what do I do about this? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. And that's, you know, we, we try to do, you know, quantify these decisions. We do the financial side of it, but that's really why this whole maximize your return on life solution is so important because it's not just about the money. You know, it's where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your money? Is it coordinated with your values? And, and you both are on the same page with your values, but often we find couples that aren't and it can lead to a lot of stress, a lot of stress with financial decisions. So Carol and Brad are the model out there, people. So <laughs> you should see what they're doing. But if you want to learn more about how we can help you maximize your return on life, please visit rrcapital.com. And uh, we'd be happy to talk with you. But Carol, before I go, can you give us your website if there's any listeners that might want to engage you to help them with their companies and marketing? Sure. My website is cbwhite.com. Again, that C is in Carol, B is in boy, white like the color, .com. And that focuses on um, mostly marketing research principles and using marketing research information to help organizations make um, more informed decisions and increasing their confidence. Great. Well, we'll have your website and your email on our uh, website. And I just want to thank you guys. This was fun for me to learn a little more about you. I see you all the time, but it's fun to take a step back, learn more about the trip. And I hope uh, listeners, you will take the time to maximize your return on life. Thank you. <laughs>